I'm interested in the people who love the world more and in what they have to tell us. Because what we do begins with what we believe we can do. It begins with being open to the possibilities and interested in the complexities. And that's the end of that Solnit passage. But I think, you know, being open to the possibilities, being interested in the complexities, I mean, that sounds like a good definition of a lifelong learner to me. I'm Jeff Cobb. I'm Salisa Steele, and this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Welcome to episode 254 of the Leading Learning Podcast, the midpoint in our seven-part series on the learning business in disruptive times. Salisa and I set up the series in episode 251, and then we ran two interviews. I talked with Seth Kahn, founder of Visionary Leadership, for episode 252. And I spoke with Shilpa Alamchandani, a diversity, equity, and inclusion strategist with more than two decades' experience for episode 253. Coming up later in the series still are conversations with Tracy Steiner, Senior Vice President for Education and Training at the National Rural Electric Cooperative Association, and Sean Boynes, Executive Director of the American Association for Anatomy. Before we get to those conversations with Tracy and Sean, though, we want to devote this episode to reflecting on what we've learned so far from talking with Seth and Shilpa, checking in on what's new as the pandemic, racial justice, the economy, and the election are all evolving and changing situations, and looking at the practical implications of what all this means for how a learning business might survive and even thrive in these disruptive times, these times when the normal course of activities and processes are thrown off. At the end of the first episode in this series, we offered four questions to you to get you, the listener, engaged and thinking about your learning business. Those questions were, what are the types of disruption you and the learners you serve are experiencing now? How are you responding personally and in your learning business to those types of disruption? How can you assess the effectiveness of your response? What else do you need to do to respond? Our hope is that you spent a little time thinking about your answers, maybe even engaged with a colleague or more to discuss and share. And perhaps as you listened to what Seth and Shopa had to say, you saw new facets or nuances that added to your understanding of these disruptive times and the implications for your learning business, the possibilities and the complexities. If you haven't yet engaged with these four questions, there is, of course, still time. Reflecting on these questions will still be useful and productive. And we always try to model the desired behavior here to walk the walk and not just talk the talk. So we want to revisit the questions and we'll start with what are the types of disruption you and the learners you serve are experiencing now? We had four categories of disruption in mind as we framed this series. One, the pandemic. Two, systemic racism. Three, the economic situation. And four, political contentiousness and uncertainty in a major election year. And I was satisfied that all four categories came up overtly in your conversation with Seth, Jeff. And in your conversation with Shilpa Salisa, the pandemic and systemic racism come up overtly. And I heard shadings of the economic situation and politics in what she shared. Definitely. And I noticed that Seth and Shilpa both brought up equity issues 
Beyond questions of racial equity, Seth remarked on what he sees as, quote, a new level of depth and understanding of the African-American experience and how it is a metaphor for all marginalized people, end quote. So he's thinking about people with disabilities, Native Americans, immigrants, and others, and he thinks that progress on the racial equity front will lift up many boats, as he put it. And then Shilpa and her work engages with diversity, equity, and inclusion broadly. And that diversity includes not just race, but ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, age, religion, socioeconomic status, ability, disability, etc. And I find Seth's and Shilpa's connecting of racial inequity to other types of uh, inequity useful, not to diminish or dilute the U.S.'s history of inequity towards blacks, but to remind us how learning in one area can be extrapolated and applied in other areas. Uh, In the learning field, this is the idea of how powerful prior knowledge and schemas in the service of germane cognitive load can be for adult learners. When we come to understand one thing, like the roots of racial inequality in the U.S., it can help us understand Related topics like sexism, discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, and so on. Yes, and and Seth also raised climate change as a type of disruption we're facing now. That wasn't in the the four categories of disruption we enumerated, but I heartily concur with Seth that it's a major issue causing disruption. Oh, me too. I think climate change is a major disruptor, and I think it's one that many in the events industry, for example, haven't yet fully appreciated and accounted for in preparing for the future. And I found it interesting uh, that in the conversations that he's having with 100 CEOs, he's seeing consensus around climate change. He's seeing those CEOs in agreement that climate change is a major issue that has to be dealt with. And so it's not a question of whether to respond to climate change, but how. Right. And I'm guessing it's not so much that observation on its own that you found interesting, but that he hasn't seen clear consensus on the systemic racism front, that he's had some conversations with CEOs who say, no, that's not impacting me. Yeah, you're right. Uh, That is the part I found interesting. And it ties, I think, to what we talked about in the first episode in the series. Disruption isn't inherently good or bad, and disruption or the effects of disruption, aren't evenly distributed. The current economy it just isn't bad for everyone, and some people don't personally suffer because of systemic racism, or at least they don't recognize that they do, and so they don't necessarily see a reason to engage on that topic. Now, let's move on to the second question. How are you responding personally and in your learning business to those types of disruption? In talking with Shilpa, I heard her say that it can feel overwhelming to be someone working on diversity, equity, and inclusion now. And that was a reminder for me that responses to that question, how are you responding personally and in your learning business to those types of disruption, the responses to that question are at least twofold. I mean, there's the gut level reaction, and then there's the choice, the action you choose to take. But being tuned into your emotions is important. Emotions are real and they impact what you feel capable and able to do. 
And I think there's a, a kind of corollary between emotions and bias. Shilpa talked about biases uh, often being unseen, unnoticed. And I think the same goes for emotions. But if we tune in and notice them, then we can truly choose how to act. We can work to recognize negative bias and negative emotions. And by recognizing them, we're then able to make better choices and decisions. And I think Shilpa said it really well. And so I'd like to quote, quote her. She said, we can't erase bias, but we can notice it. We can interrupt it. We can make different choices. We can, in that pause between the thought and the action, choose a different way. Hmm. And Seth, too, talked about emotions and the, and the dark side uh, of these disruptions. He's been, he's been doing a lot of reading uh, about racism. And uh, you know, as he sees it, that, that's often not easy stuff. Well, yeah. I remember he called it traumatic, in fact. But it's the kind of hard work that's worth doing. It's the hard work of learning, frankly. It's the effort that leads to learning and change. And in terms of how he's responding personally to the disruptions, he, he talked about reading, as we were just saying, reading to learn and understand. And, and he talked about meditation. And really, both reading and meditation, I'd say, have also been incredibly important to me in this time. They're both a source of potential insight, um, and at the same time, a, a source of solace, really. Well, and reading's been important for me. Um, I typically read in my free time poetry and fiction primarily, but over the last six months or so, I've added more nonfiction to my reading diet, particularly books that deal with systemic racism. I'd love to be a, a better meditator than I am, uh, and I think if I were a better meditator, I probably wouldn't even use a term like better. But, um, you know, for me, meditation is a, a nascent practice. But I have found a lot of solace in yoga the last few months. Yoga is, for me, a, a kind of moving meditation. I went a few weeks without yoga when the studios around here closed in March. But since then, I've reconnected with my teacher, and she's using Zoom for live online sessions. And while I didn't expect it, it's been surprisingly satisfying to do yoga online in that context. Now, of course, as someone who's been not just involved in online learning since the late 90s, but a proponent of online learning, I probably shouldn't have been as surprised as I was at how good online yoga can be. And I know that Shilpa shared that she's been, quote, really heartened to see just how deep the learning can be using virtual tools and platforms, end quote. And so, I know I'm not the only one being pleasantly surprised. And Shilpa also mentioned that she hopes that important things, like, for example, conversations about uh, and work on diversity, equity, and inclusion, don't get put off indefinitely because of the current disruptive times, that we don't use that uh, as an excuse. And, and she seemed really excited about the possibilities for dealing with DEI issues, even in virtual formats. And she also mentioned being choosier um, in her work, turning down some DEI jobs when the organization didn't seem committed to change and seemed to be thinking more about one-off workshops. And I think that that's a common thread for many folks during these times. A lot was taken off our plates with lockdowns and physical distancing. And so I think many folks are now trying to be careful about what they put back on their plate, being somewhat choosy about it. 
And then, of course, uh, others have been trying to find a way to, to get something onto their plate. Uh, you know, Seth talked about his business dropping to zero very quickly. But, you know, in, in, in truth, Seth's style, rather than sitting around passively uh, and waiting it out, he took action. He set out to talk to 100 CEOs to get really up close to the problem, to understand what they were facing. So he did a lot for free for a time, but it was very valuable to his own learning and understanding, and he was able to make it valuable to others as well by bringing CEOs together, connecting people so they could share and learn. And I think Seth's 100 CEOs uh, initiative is, is brilliant. And in fact, I guess it's not even technically his idea. He borrowed it from someone else in another field, but I think it's the kind of simple, powerful idea that can have really broad application. I mean, what might a learning business find out by talking to 100 learners in the next six months? A lot. <laughs> and I, I mean, I can imagine that the market uh, insight and relationship building alone would be amazing. In fact, I, I don't even have to imagine that because uh, we have done hundreds of those types of conversations over the years on, on, uh, on behalf of organizations that we've worked for. And they always offer up uh, tremendous insights that the organization can then take action on. Now, you know, obviously, Seth started his 100 CEOs initiative early on in the pandemic, but uh, this, is a, this is a fluid situation we're in. You know, we're dealing with ongoing and evolving types of disruption. So you know, even now, you know, starting an, an initiative like that at this point would still yield incredible insight into what learners are really dealing with personally and professionally and how you might best you know, connect with them, serve them, and support them. Yeah, we are absolutely in a fluid situation. And so I think it's worth noting some of what's changed since we spoke with Seth and Shilpa in the first part of September 2020. I'm thinking in particular of President Trump's announcement at the National Archives on September 17th. So that happened after our conversations with Seth and Shilpa. Um, At the National Archives, Trump made an announcement establishing a national commission to promote patriotic education. And then on September 22nd, he followed that up with an executive order on combating race and sex stereotyping. And then on October 7th, Susan Robertson, she's the CEO of the American Society of Association Executives, and I know she came up in your conversation with Seth, Jeff, because she's one of the 100 CEOs he's talked with since the pandemic. On October 7th, uh, she sent, on behalf of ASAE, a, a letter to President Trump quote, condemning recent White House directives intended to ban diversity and anti-racism training in the federal workplace and retaliate against those that prioritize and value a fair and inclusive workplace that is respectful to all employees, end quote. Mm. And of course, uh, I mean, I'll avoid getting uh, political here, but uh, Trump certainly has interesting perspectives on what counts as uh, patriotic education and what com- combating uh, stereotypes means. Uh, definitely not the same thing that uh, Susan Robertson and, and ASAE would mean. And of course, you know, that, that's some changes that have happened. Who knows what will change before this episode airs and before you, dear listener, are hearing this. We do know that this episode will air on Election Day in the United States. And we know that early voting has hit record numbers. Um, By October 21st, at least 31 million votes had been cast in the U.S. 2020 general election. That's 31 million compared to just 5.6 million at the same time in 2016. 
And then as of October 25th, more ballots have been cast already in 2020 than were cast pre-election in 2016. And that was with more than a week to go before election day. So I think it's pretty clear that the pandemic plus the contentious political environment are getting voters out in unprecedented numbers, at least early voters. What we also know is that it's unlikely that we'll know the outcome of the presidential and other races um, by the end of Election Day. The, the contentious environment and the, the regulations around when and for how long mail-in ballots can be counted and, and legal challenges mean that uh, we may be waiting quite a while. You know, uh, Shilpa brought up unlearning, and I think these disruptive times have made unlearning so important. So many expectations based on how things usually work or how things used to work, like knowing the winners on election day, those expectations are being upended. So I think there's a need for beginner's mind to borrow that Zen phrase. The third question is, how can you assess the effectiveness of your response? And that will depend at least in part on what you're doing to respond to the disruptions, the measure, the assessment, ideally being tailored to the actions you're taking. One broadly applicable thing we can say, though, is that learning businesses should be looking at not only lagging indicators, but also leading indicators. Lagging indicators would be things like How many enrollments did you get for a new online course or how many registrations for that virtual conference that replaced your usually in-person event? Those are lagging indicators because they're after the fact. It's after you have the online course designed, developed, and rolled out, that's when you see enrollment numbers. And it's after the virtual conference is planned that you see registration numbers. And the leading indicators, on the other hand, would give you earlier input on how successful a product or service or any effort really might be for your learning business. So pre-selling would certainly fall in this camp. But I also think that something like a 100 Learners initiative modeled on Seth's 100 CEOs initiative could really yield some useful information and ideas. Similarly, I think doing an honest assessment of how inclusive and diverse your facilitators and trainers and subject matter experts are could be a really great activity in this area. And I know that's something that Shilpa raised and suggested. So another generality likely to be true for most learning businesses is that in addition to looking at a mix of leading and lagging indicators, you'll probably also want to be looking at qualitative anecdotal information as well as hard quantifiable numbers when you're assessing. And so finally, let's touch on the fourth question we posed in the first episode of this series. What else do you need to do to respond? And the answers here will hopefully come from and be grounded in your answers to the last question. That is, based on an honest assessment of how what you're doing to respond to these disruptive times is going, then you'll figure out what you need to do instead or in addition. Or what you'll need to drop. Well, that's a good point. Sunsetting should be an option. And I I think that gets back to that idea of being choosy about what gets put on the plate. 
And as a particular area, perhaps worth probing, I know that Seth brought up leadership a couple of times in his conversation. And disruptive times, of course, call for good leadership. They heighten the need for it. They can also complicate the execution of good leadership. The, you know, the pivot to, to virtual, I think, has been hard for some people to lead in the the kind of input you get when when you're in close physical proximity, you know, and you're in the office, uh, you're really working up close to people. That's different than what you get in a work from home situation. And so, you know, for learning businesses that offer products and services specifically in leadership, there's a chance to revisit those offerings and make sure they speak to the current situation. And then for learning businesses in general, there's also the need to assess internal leadership during this disruptive time and, and look at what needs to change and, and, and to be done in these disruptive times so that the organization internally is working well and so it can respond to and even be proactive in supporting its learners and, and leading its learners. I would say that more reading is an answer for me to this, what else do you need to do to respond question? Or if not an answer directly, it's a way of uh, arriving at answers. Um, Reading is kind of my default, my go-to for most anything. And so I know what I have to watch is making sure that I don't stop at reading, that I take action to. And I did decide to volunteer to be a poll observer during this election season. And there's been something soothing in volunteering. It's, it's helped me quell or at least channel some of my anxiety in this time of political disruption and contentiousness. Mm-hmm. One of these days we may need to uh, provide some background on, uh, on why reading is so important uh, to us, because I think both of us would tend to uh, say more reading in, in answer to just about any, any problem that... Um, that we encounter, but uh, we, you know, we're both big believers that, that reading, when it's when it's done well, when it's done right, um, a can be hard, as, as Seth indicated, but uh, b it, it it can be transformative, and, and it really can prepare you for the changes that uh, that you need to make, and 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 to understand the changes that need to be made more broadly. And so, with that in mind, you know, maybe let's uh, each share a bit about something we've read that's been helpful to us in these disruptive times. And I'm happy to start because what's on my mind is a book that actually came up in my conversation with Seth, as it turned out, uh, he'd read it too. And it's called Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and Its Urgent Lessons for Our Own by Eddie S. Glaude Jr. And it was published this summer. It's an excellent book for helping to understand the, the current political situation in this country and for helping to understand systemic racism. The, the book is a, a mix of, of history, uh, biography, personal essay, memoir. Claude draws on his, on his own you know, personal uh, story at times, philosophy, uh, political commentary, social criticism. It's, it's got you know, a little bit of everything in there, and it very clearly touches on two of the four types of disrupt, the disruption that, um, that you and I had in mind when we were framing this series, Salisa. And I would recommend it to anyone who wants a, a much deeper understanding of, of race and its impact on politics and really just on life in general in the United States today. Glaude takes his book's title from Baldwin's last novel, and here's the specific passage. Not everything is lost. Responsibility cannot be lost. It can only be abdicated. If one refuses abdication, 
one begins again. Glaude focuses on Baldwin's need to renew his fight for racial justice throughout his career, how disappointments and setbacks from you know, the murders of Medgar Evers, Malcolm X, and Martin Luther King Jr., all the way to Reaganomics, how he had to, to, to really uh, begin again from those. And, and Baldwin doesn't let himself off his own hook. He feels the responsibility. He doesn't abdicate. He begins again, over and over. And I think that Glaude's book is arguably the story of James Baldwin as a magnificent lifelong learner. Learning, after all, is about changing, and change, at least meaningful change, is often hard to accomplish. Uh, We've talked about, you know, learning being hard, learning taking effort. And so in Begin Again, I see a powerful example of the need for learners to begin again and to adopt that beginner's mind that uh, you brought up earlier, Salisa. And I do think that beginner's mind is a powerful learning stance. I read Begin Again, too, at your recommendation, Jeff, and it definitely deepened my understanding of these current disruptive times. And and Glaude keeps circling back to the notion of beginning again throughout his book. He ends most chapters with some repetition of that notion. And so I really like that you just homed in on that, Jeff. The book I'll share is Rebecca Solnit's Call Them by Their True Names, American Crises and Essays. And in it, she examines a broad assortment of American crises. So think racism, sexism, climate change. And she looks at those crises through the powerful and necessary work of calling injustices by their true names. The book was published in 2018, but it collects essays mostly published earlier and in other places. I think there's one from 2004, but most of them are dated in the 2015 to 2018 range. The essay called Naive Cynicism in particular has been coming back to my mind again and again. And in that, she writes that pundits and non-pundits, quote, use bad data and worse analysis to pronounce with great certainty on future inevitabilities, present impossibilities, and past failures. The mindset behind the statements is what I call naive cynicism. It bleeds the sense of possibility and maybe the sense of responsibility out of people. Uh, that's really interesting. She mentions responsibility just as, as Baldwin did in, in the passage Claude's title comes from. Uh, yeah, you're right. And, you know, what she describes as naive cynicism, which is kind of this world-weary assumption that things are as they are, and it's kind of a fool's errand to try and change them. So she talks about how naive cynicism also leads to a, quote, tendency to oversimplify. And then she writes... If simplification means reducing things to their essentials, oversimplification tosses aside the essential as well. It is a relentless pursuit of certainty and clarity in a world that generally offers neither. A desire to shove nuances and complexities into clear-cut binaries. Naive cynicism concerns me because it flattens out the past and the future, and because it reduces the motivation to participate in public life, public discourse, and even intelligent conversation that distinguishes shades of gray, ambiguities and ambivalences, uncertainties, unknowns, and opportunities. And that's the end of the Solnit passage. 
you know, that kind of disinterest, that, that lack of motivation to take action or, or even to have a meaningful conversation, I think that's just absolutely deadly for learning. You know, curiosity and questions are at the heart of learning, and the naive cynics that Solnit describes, they aren't curious. They don't ask questions. And what she offers in that essay is an alternative to naive cynicism, and she says that it's, quote, an active response to what arises, a recognition that we often don't know what is going to happen ahead of time, and an acceptance that whatever takes place will usually be a mixture of blessings and curses that will unfold over considerable time. And then she wraps up by writing, Naive cynicism loves itself more than the world. It defends itself in lieu of defending the world. I'm interested in the people who love the world more and in what they have to tell us. Because what we do begins with what we believe we can do. It begins with being open to the possibilities and interested in the complexities. And that's the end of that Solnit passage. But I think, you know, being open to the possibilities, being interested in the complexities, I mean, that sounds like a good definition of a lifelong learner to me. If you haven't already, we encourage you to reflect on the four questions we use to scaffold this episode. And even if you have, you may want to revisit them as things have changed and time is passing. Some of what you thought of as disruption seven months ago has likely stopped being a break in pattern or activity. It's now the expected. And it can be valuable to remember and examine those shifts in your thinking. The four questions again are, What are the types of disruption you and the learners you serve are experiencing now? How are you responding personally and in your learning business to those types of disruption? How can you assess the effectiveness of your response? What else do you need to do to respond? We'll also offer two additional questions for your consideration. These are inspired by Baldwin or Baldwin via Glaude and by Rebecca Solnit. So one, where in your learning business do you need to begin again? And then second, how can you counter naive cynicism in yourself and your learners? That is, how can you be open to possibilities and interested in complexities? You can find show notes at leadinglearning.com slash episode 254, along with a transcript and a variety of resources. At leadinglearning.com slash episode 254, you'll also see options for subscribing to the podcast. To make sure you don't miss the remaining episodes in this series, we encourage you to subscribe, and subscribing also helps us get some data on the impact of the podcast. We would also be grateful if you'd take a minute to rate us on Apple Podcast. Salise and I personally appreciate it, and those reviews and ratings help the podcast show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. Just go to leadinglearning.com slash Apple to leave a review and rating. Lastly, please spread the word about leading learning. In the show notes at leadinglearning.com slash episode 254, you'll find links to us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast. <laughs>